0: You're listening to Marcus Sahaba online radio podcast.
1: Your favorite programmer, which is uh, legal talk and alhamdulillah, legal talk uh, keeping the Ummah conscientized on what's happening in the world of legalities. And Alhamdulillah, Summa Alhamdulillah. I can tell you this evening we got your favorite back. Yes, he's been globetrotting, people. He's been globe globetrotting and trotting, and he deserved he deserved that break. And I'll we'll reveal to you where our senior attorney uh, Mahmoud Mia has been to. So, Alhamdulillah, let me welcome a uh, pious and sagacious Ummah together with our astute attorney with a hearty Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And, uh, Mahmood, uh, tell us, how are you doing this fine, beautiful evening? wa alaikum wa barakatuh.
0: Alhamdulillah, with Allah's grace, we're doing well, Alhamdulillah.
1: Alhamdulillah, many things happening. You look at the, the legalities, you look at uh, uh, the South African uh, courts, uh, busy with politicians, and you see Dali Impofu. Hey, he must be got a very big bank balance because he's fighting nearly every politician's case. And every <laughs> Anyway, you know what's going on there, but Alhamdulillah. What I want to know from you, uh, senior attorney, our Mahmoud, uh, Mia attorney, where have you been and you've been uh, enjoying... Uh, Perhaps uh, the sights and sounds of overseas. Talk to us a little about your trip recently. Yeah,
0: Allahabad gave me the opportunity to visit Turkey. So with my family, so we visited uh, just two places. We went to Antalya first, and then we went to Istanbul. Um, and I think we just wanted to get away from the cold of Johannesburg because when you go to uh, Europe now. It's in the peak of its summer, so, you know, you're experiencing beautiful hot weather. Um, and Turkey, alhamdulillah, is a beautiful destination to visit because, firstly, um, it's got a very strong Islamic history. There's a strong Islamic presence there as well. Um, so, you know, it's it's a place where you feel at home in the sense that um, if you want to make salat, you know, they call um, Istanbul the city of minarets because it's just thousands and thousands of like masjids with minarets everywhere. So wherever you are, you're always hearing the call of the azan, and it makes it much easier for us as Muslims in terms of being able to perform our salat, um, and also um, you know from the perspective of, of food, all the food there is halal as well. So it makes it you know very easy and very you know Muslim friendly for us. Alhamdulillah. Um, So, you know, when you go there and you visit the museums and all of that and you see the, the, you know, the strong um, Islamic history uh, and it just makes us sort of find that, you know, how fortunate those people were. Because when we go back to the time of the Ottoman Empire and you go to a place like uh, the Topkapi Museum and you see that at the time when Muslims were in the total obedience of Allah, Allah Ta'ala gave them control over large parts of the world. Um, and if you look at just from the material perspective, you see all the jewels and all the things that they were using from a material point of view. That it was at its peak. You know they were so. You know, as Muslims, when we go to these countries, we look back at our history and say there was a time when the world was bowing down to us, um, and Allah put the world at the feet of Muslims because of their obedience. The world came into into the total control of the you know of the Muslims. So I think that was something which makes us hope that we can go back you know and, and, and inshallah enjoy those days again where we can come into the obedience of Allah so Allah can put us in control of the world again and then also Turkey is very rich with many Sahaba Ikram who are buried there um, and then one is that Ayub um, Bansari um, he's buried there and Allah, they've created a nice little uh, like a little tomb for him, and there's a masjid next to him. And sometimes when you go to the various different masjids, when you go to his masjid, the one that's buried close, uh, next to where he's buried, then you can see the difference. I think that just his presence there, although he's, he's buried there, but that masjid has got a kind of a, you know, it's more Abadi, it's more, it's more buzzing, it's more full than, than other masjids. So I think it, it shows us as well that, um, you know, uh, people who do good on this earth, um, that even after they leave, uh, you know, the influence can still be felt. Remember now, he was a person for whom our Prophet Sallallahu stayed when he came to Medina and how much khidmat he made for him. And then we are told that at the age of 90 when the Muslims were, were battling for Constantinople, um, he in fact went for that battle even at that age. And then he passed away. Um, and that's where he's buried now. So these are all like beautiful stories for us and beautiful lessons for us that, um, you know, our, our deen is so great and we just have to try and gain back that same glory reason and inshallah, uh, then, you know, I think Allah will be pleased with us also, inshallah.
1: I tell you, Mahmoud, you're a motivator. Did anyone tell you, you know what, Mahmoud, you're a motivator, you make a terrific storyteller, but you know, no, as 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 an alim, you would have been brilliant. I would come to every Juma that you'll talk at, <laughs> you know what, i tell you who's talking there, people. It's our own. Uh, I would have said Maulana Mahmud Mia is talking. I'm going to that masjid. because you know the reality is uh, that when they obeyed the laws of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, you know the Quran ayat is wa Atiullah wa Rasul, obeying Allah and obeying His messenger. And you notice that Turkey ruled the world, and they had uh, Mahmud. They had the biggest cannon on the on, on earth. Yeah, you know what they did militarily. They struck fear into the hearts of the enemies. You know the the, the Quran states. Um, you know uh, you, you, what you should do uh, strike fear into the hearts of your enemies uh, arm yourself to the teeth that is the word and but with taqwa of doing the right things and doing it not for your pleasures or to you want to be a ruler and all that you're doing it purely to spread the deen and do it for the pleasure of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala now you know the question that i like to pose is uh here you are you know going from a lawless south africa and there you in a, a country full of MashaAllah, Allah, assalamu alaikum Azan resonating everywhere, and law-abiding citizens talk to us about that paradox that you have seen firsthand.
0: Yeah, I, I think you know that is so. That is so nice about traveling overseas because uh, I think firstly, um, as South Africans, we have this great phobia of crime. So when you're walking in a foreign country, that phobia, um, although it it lies within you, but you walk with ease. So whether you're walking um, during the day or even late at night, um, you don't feel threatened in any way, <clears throat> and I think that is, you know, one of the biggest uh, uh, pluses that a person feels when you're traveling overseas. I think one is that lack of fear, you know, because so there you see people walk around freely, people in terms of the restaurants and the street cafes are open till the wee hours of the morning, people having coffee on the sidewalks. And now because it's summer, the evenings are like very beautiful. <clears throat> so Alhamdulillah, that that makes it like like, like really nice. And in terms of, uh, you know, people obeying the law, you see, I mean, obviously we you don't find people just doing whatever they want to do. I mean, everybody abides by it. So when you're going onto a tram, people wait their turn. Uh, When you, you know, when you have to do something and there's, there's a queue of people, you obviously wait your, your turn. So I think that makes it like, like, like very very nice compared to here yeah, where everybody's just wanting to just rush and rush and rush and there's no consideration for the like next person so i think that was very nice although it was like very busy with many people from many different countries but and i think it all worked out like it was really nice and very inspiring to be in that kind of an environment you know and i think the other nice thing that i should have mentioned was just the the um Hagia Sophia you know that was the museum so When it was built, it was built by the Christians, and it was at the time one of the biggest uh, cathedrals that was built. And then when the Muslims um, took over, um, then it was converted to a masjid, but then later on Turkey, at the time of the Ataturk, that was then converted to a kind of a museum, and it remained so for a very, very long time until recently President Erdogan converted it back into a masjid. So making namaz in that masjid is like a stupendous feeling because the building is so rich in character. I mean, you can't believe that it was built like centuries ago, but the structure is so like awe-inspiring. And now, since they converted to a masjid, they've got like beautiful carpets with lighting. So it's like really, really nice. And we actually were there for Eid time, and we made it's a lot there. Um, and it was packed to capacity. And then, you know, when they make the takbir, it's like just overpowering so they, they, that was like the most beautiful feeling and really and the, the blue mosque is very close to the Hagia Sophia but the blue mosque is currently they're having them all restored all the old masjids the Turks are they keep them restored so that's currently now under renovation so only a small portion of the masjid um, was open uh, but I think once it's done it will be also I think awe-inspiring
1: to, to can you know go back to the masjid again you know, Mahmoud, jazakallah khair for really sharing that with us. And uh, you're bringing Turkey alive. Hey, <laughs> I tell you, people, that's why you are very fortunate you're listening to this evening's program. Mahmoud, another point is, as you spoke about the renovations of uh, or the um, uh, the massages taking place in Turkey. But, you know, I, I'm thinking on another dimension where you find that in the UK, you know, in, in Britain, uh, recently uh, Muslims, uh, Muslims have bought out a lot of old churches and uh, they renovated them into masajids and also you know you look at the uh, Hagia Sophia uh, I mean for the orthodox christian that was like the mosque for them mean, the the church for them you know it was like the ultimate what is going through their mind you know they say oh you know this islamophobia is coming through but the muslims the muslims are buying all our churches and converting them into uh into 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 mosque uh, you know what is going through their mind, uh, Mahmoud, and you as a you know as a barrister, how do you give a rebuttal uh, to them
0: yeah, look I think that uh, you know um, Europe is seeing such a like, tremendous change. I think that um, the the Muslim presence is being felt all over Europe now, and I think it's not just in the u k. but in many other countries as well. Muslims are coming to the fore, so for the first time, people are being exposed to Islam. Obviously, the first reaction when people buy over churches and the Hagia Sophia is that no, they, they they obviously not showing any respect to the Christian culture. But later on, when they realize, listen, that that you know, I think people eventually realize that um, Islam is the most perfect religion, and Islam is the religion that everybody has to embrace at some time. And I think that like now, when you go there, you see there's lots of visitors that come. Um, and they obviously also now, you know, they also show respect because they make sure that they wear some kind of a garment over them when they enter the, the sort of masjid and all of that. And many of them stand behind to see how the salat has been performed. And I think all of those things are obviously having a kind of an effect. So inshallah, with time, I think they will see that, you know, what is the beauty and that the purpose of converting to a masjid will be far more superior than having it like for a church where you meet once a week. But here this prayer is taking place all the time. And the beautiful azan that they give in Turkey also, it's always awe-inspiring, you know, the way they always give so beautiful azan everywhere. So, alhamdulillah, so, you know, this is happening now, and I think that as Muslims, we can say, alhamdulillah, that, you know, we can feel proud that Europe um, is now seeing Islam come alive. And I think many of the non-Muslims are, are scared. And I think that the European powers are also uh, scared. Listen, Islam would basically overtake and, be, and, and Europe would become Muslim eventually. So in fact, I, I heard an uh, interesting story the other day. It could be a kind of a conspiracy theory, but uh, but if one thinks of it, um, you know, it may it may even be true. Only Allah Ta'ala knows best. So the war that's taking place now between Russia and, um, and uh so you know ukraine. they say in the ukraine they're saying that because there is um, in europe right now there's many people of color so the people of color are overtaking europe and you know as 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 people of color means that um, it's mainly muslim people whether you know from africa from from uh, you know from from syria from wherever else um so because of this, uh, they obviously felt that there has, has to be a need to equalize it. So what to do now? Create a war so the people from Ukraine, all the white people with the white's fair skin can, can go into Europe because they accepted them everywhere quite easily. And that's just to create a kind of a balance between between fair and dark skinned people on the one end. And secondly, to also curtail or to curb the spread of Islam that there's more Muslims now so we have more Christians coming in it's a kind of a balancing act now again like I said it's a kind of a conspiracy theory maybe but if you you think of it seriously I think that there could be some merit in it because wars are not just uh, they don't just happen they obviously look back in history there's always some kind of a sinister motive behind it and you know so this could be one of it where it's it's a means of just trying to create a kind of a balance but like we said Allah knows best.
1: You know, you, you said a, a thing uh, that uh, makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the Turks. They look like whites. I mean, they have blue eyes, uh, blonde hair also. You look at the Syrians. They have uh, white skin also and, uh, you know, very, mashallah, very faint complexion. Look at the Afghanis, um, Mahmoud. You have seen these yeah. Afghanis with blonde hair and blue eyes and, you know, what are they talking of color? I can show you Kashmir. I can take you to Kashmir and show you Muslims (laughs) that their cheeks are even redder than apples. You know, the lovely cheeks and the beauty that they have. But this is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given them color. But what they're really afraid of is uh, the resurgence of Islam. And, you know, you can't stop divine decree. You can have all your walls. You can start murdering and killing and maiming and, uh, you know, passing out all those propaganda. 9-11, 7-7 and all these things we know. These are, you know, when we speak the truth, they'll say, oh yes, Mahmood, that's conspiracy theory. If you tell them, no, those engineers have uh, done a study and said that these buildings were uh, brought down, they were pulled down, it was implosion, it wasn't an explosion. This is all your stories that you're made up of. Uh, steel cannot be melted by, uh, you know, a para- what you call, a jet fuel. It can never melt steel. But they look at how the steel melted. It was only nuclear uh, thermal energy that you used on the steel. And All that we know, Mahmood, but as we moved on, and, you know, once you're in Turkey, you know, we look at our traffic here in South Africa, it is, uh, you know, cowboy driving. Anger overtaking each other. I mean, recently you see the accident level is just unreal in this country. But in Turkey, you know, uh, there must have been a lot of uh, uh, discipline, uh, no traffic violations and so forth, and uh, you know, no taxis like us, uh, you know, uh, running in, hooting, going to residential area, making a noise, and you know, if the taxi driver feels that you're irritating him, he can stop his taxi in the middle of the road, get out of his taxi, and can give you a few slaps and get away with impunity. Nothing like that overseas, uh, Mahmoud. Exactly. And I think, and
0: and there's no, uh, Istanbul is an extremely busy, busy city. I mean, now because it's the peak summer uh, and it's it's sort of the holidays, um, we have like really literally millions of people that come to visit there. So the roads are like extremely, extremely busy. But even when it's so jam-packed, people are still, you know, law-abiding not fighting and shouting and screaming at each other. Um, and there also, you see all the like yellow taxis. people use lots of like public transport there as well. But everybody is sort of waiting turn. Everybody everybody's exercising patience. Um, and even they've got highways that are obviously like multi, multi-laned multi and all of that. But whether you're traveling within the city on the small little streets, like where we stayed was in Sultan Ammar, which is around the area where the Blue Mosque and it is, got small little streets, but even there the cars show, great respect for each other, give way to each other. And I think that's so nice to see that even with so many thousands of cars and so many people, yet you don't find any accidents. You don't find people shouting and screaming and hooting like <laughs> like maniacs on the road. Yeah, mm.
1: yeah, absolutely. I don't know. Have you been to India? Yes, a few years ago, Ji. Yeah, talk to the people about that traffic. I mean, those charos, they got their own traffic laws, right? But a very few accidents. Why, Mahmood? Yeah,
0: well, I suppose they just, they drive where they end on the water. But I mean, they just got their own kind of style and own kind of, of, of uh, it's a kind of a culture, the way they drive. So again, I think they all just allow each other to go. They route a lot. But I think, again, I think ultimately it's showing some kind of patience to allow others to go before you to a- avoid those kind of conflict situations.
1: Now, absolutely. And uh, Mahmoud, you know, you came back uh, from uh, your trip, uh, getting back into South Africa. Uh, what type of feeling uh, did you get when you came back to your beloved country? Did you uh, call and say, hey, let me look at Alan Payton's book, Cry for the Beloved Country? He uh, just came back and said, you know what, whatever be, I am Junubi Africa. This is my ha- uh, my town. This is my land. This is my Junubi Africa. I'll make a difference here. What went through your mind when you got into OR Tambo Airport, Mahmoud? I think home is
0: always home. Um, We understand that we have a country that's faced with many challenges, with many problems. Uh, But a little has put us here in this country, and I think that uh, really without any exaggeration, um, our country in terms of what there is, infrastructure, although it's not working right now, but if you look at it as a country, really, I, I think that there's very few countries that can match up to South Africa in terms of what we have. It's just a pity now that we have all those rogues that are governing us and stealing and doing all of this mischief. And I think that is something which is like, so like perturbing because if you think, um, if so we go to Turkey and you see that uh, there's proper governance there, obviously I think every country has got its own issue of, uh, bit of corruption here and there, but not to the extent that it was here. And we can just think that if in 94, if the people that took over just basically continued with the right uh, with the right moral fiber and, and, and sort of governed the, the way that they should, really, I think without a doubt, we could have been like one of the kind of major powers on this earth today, because we have everything in terms of resources and everything. But, you know, I, I suppose this is the sort of African experience. And we hope now that there is talks of, of revival. But, you know, again, it's just talk. He said you know, talk is cheap, but the thing is that I mean, like you know uh, we have to now you know hope that what they are saying now it's not just rhetoric before the upcoming you know elections and all of that that there is some seriousness behind it that there's some honesty behind it, there's some sincerity behind it, because just last week the president is talking about now we have to sort out this issue of the load shedding and we can do this and do this, and now today we hear that no uh, you know escom says no, no, we've got some places we have to again implement it so. You know, who's pulling who in the zoo? <laughs> I don't know, you know, but, uh, you know, we just hope that, inshallah, that, you know, there is going to be some positivity now. And I think the ANC will probably realize this and that now, if they don't get their act in order, definitely they're going to be out come the next election. And I think a lot depends on them. And, and the only way that they, they can do it is that if they really put some kind of muscle behind their, their words and empty promises and bring something to the fore, um, and if they do that, um, then, you know, inshallah, things could basically improve.
1: You know, you know Mahmoud, Allah has truly blessed you with a very sound, uh, you know, a political mind to you. You know, you you make a powerful analysis there, you know, between you and I, every South African who cares about uh, the future. I mean, we all care about the future of, the, of, of our country. And it's uh, eventually the people... Uh, that that need to agree, and you know we we do have, but I you know uh, between you and I, I think we do have major differences, and uh, the, the the sad part is the polarization. If you look at the uh, uh, ANC presently has becoming uh, becoming an ethnic party, ethnic in this sense, it only has one color now. You know where the, during the time of Nelson Mandela, you had everyone there. The Charos were there at the forefront. You know the Kader Rasmal, the Dula Umar, the Jay Niker, and who and who and who. Uh, you know Mandela brought everyone in, even brought in a few whites into the, his cabinet. Uh, but uh, presently, this ANC is making uh, the wrong statements and uh, perhaps doing the wrong uh, wrong things. Uh, uh, your 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 thoughts, are Yeah, I I think that's true
0: because, I mean, the thing is that when you have a country that's uh, multiracial and multicultural, I think that you have to embrace everybody. And I think that, you know, that that whole issue of saying, no, you know, African, you must be African, uh, you know, Africa only for the Africans. I mean, we are also Africans. We were born in South Africa. The fact that we have a different color skin. It doesn't mean that we must be excluded. I think that um as, as so-called Indian people, we've done a lot for this country. Um so I mean all the other race groups as well. I mean it's said that we're still speaking in terms of like race groups even today, but you know, that culture is within us as South Africans. But everybody has played a role um in developing and bringing South Africa to where it is now. And I think then to sort of exclude everybody else and say no, we must only look after our um, our so-called own people isn't isn't right. And I think that um, you know, because of what we're seeing now, just that, like you see, you don't see people of any other color within the ANC. It also means it's a means of them alienating um, the other um, race groups. So what happens then is that people of Indian origin or people who are classified as Indians uh, are know, we won't vote for the ANC, we'll vote for somebody else. And whether you support that somebody else or not is a different issue. But the thing is that you just vote for somebody else because you just don't want to vote for the ANC. And I think that's because of their kind of policy. So I think that's that's an issue that they need to take cognizance of. And listen, we have to be fully embracing and, and let people know that we are here not just for people who are so-called African, but people uh, uh, we are here for the people who live in South Africa you know? and people who are born in South Africa and are contributing towards South Africa. They also must be part of you know this, this whole movement of uplifting the country.
1: You know, Mahmoud, I always uh, emphasize on this point, the NIC and the TIC, the nick and the tick, you know, the, the Italian Indian Congress and the Transvaal Indian con- Congress played such an integral part in, uh, you know, keeping uh, the ANC buoyant. I mean, making their contacts for them in London and, you know, these uh, Yusuf Dadus and uh, we had the Kachaliyas and so forth. Really, you know, uh, doing their pe- uh, piece of work for the foundation of uh, the ANC, but v- very conveniently that is put under file 13. I think this, you know, we need to keep these issues relevant. What, what are your thoughts? No, that's true. But you know,
0: the thing is that unfortunately, um, what's like many liberation movements, um, as they grow um, and they come into power, they then forget the history where they came, you know, where they came from, and they forget, you know, who contributed towards. Uh, Their ultimate success, and I think that's a sad part because now, and I think this is so prevalent within the ANC that they actually now it's a matter of just self empowerment. Only those that are in power, they are only caring about themselves and how they can benefit, and um, they haven't only excluded people that played a role from other races, but they've also excluded, you know, their own local indigenous people. So the people who they're supposed to be representing um, are not represented. The, all the promises that they've made um, in terms of providing any of the like basic necessities haven't come to the fore. And, and I think that I hope that people can now take a lesson from this because, again, because, you know, with come election time, there's so many promises. They do all these handouts and they do all of that and people become duped again. Um, and again, because we have that whole... Um, that whole fervor of the whole liberation struggle and and what went on and we have that hope and sometimes they hope they vote for the ANC in the hope that they would do uh, you know, what they had promised and again, then we come back to the same position where we are now so we hope that there's going to be change now and and, and ANC really revise you know, revises their policies and try to be more inclusive and also
1: be true to all of the promises that they are making currently Mahmoud, you know, they are. Uh, uh, I mean, you, you're really tickling me this uh, this evening. Allah bless you. You're a uh, tickler, you. You know, you know. there they, they, are many people that argue that South Africa is a poor country. And uh, they go on to say, so wealth and uh, redistribution will at its best make everyone poor. This is what I hear from uh, certain friends of mine. Therefore, economic growth is essential to grow the cake, they tell me. I don't know why they came out with like term like cake uh, to be redistributed. Or they could even say pizza, but we'll, we'll take it as cake. And uh, to that end, they say the economy must be freed from state control so that the entrepreneurs and uh, businesses are motivated to make uh, good money, invest more, and thereby create jobs to make the country more pos- uh, prosperous. And I always argue with them. I said this country has been captured long ago. It's been captured by the, uh, the Oppenheimers, the Ruperts, and the, the big conglomerates. And, uh, you know, you're talking about... Uh, Prosperity in this country, if you've got a trade union that, you know, shoots you down and, on every move and uh, that have draconian laws on uh, the employer, uh, you know, it, it, this country cannot uh, prosper because its uh, constitution needs to be revisited because it's giving a lot of, uh, uh, you know, a lot of rights to people uh, that, you know, use it to scuttle the ship or the economy of South Africa. Your reaction to uh, that pool of thoughts that I had just now.
0: Yeah. Look, the thing is that you know, um, you know. Again, we just you know, there's there's, there's so much of talk and, and, you know about doing this or doing that, and we can do a kind of like redistribution of power or redistribution of wealth and, and all of that. But you know, the, the reality is that the country is so rich, and if we just look at if we just tally up. Uh, um, the amounts of, of of money that has been stolen. That will just give you an idea of how much wealth has been usurped by by all of these scoundrels. You know, the thing is that that money could have been used so much more beneficially for the upliftment of people of South Africa. And it's not a matter of doing a redistribution of wealth. It's just a matter that if you use the wealth of the country properly, I mean, we get people who receive pensions, people receive grants, people, so if people are getting a kind of a basic subsistence to, to just to get by, I think people will be content. But because we have such high unemployment and, and, and there's so much of like poverty in the country, it creates, I mean, like issues. So every time something goes wrong, there's an excuse now to and steal and puff. I mean, every time there's some protest. You know, if you live in a democracy, you have a right to protest. But that protest mustn't be violent. It mustn't be I mean, it must something that you do because you have a belief that, that this is your right and, and you're fighting for your right. But, you know, in, here in Johannesburg yesterday, there was so much of trouble again in Timbisa and all of that. So the problem is that, you know, the culture of people, because of, of them not getting and because of people just and the culture of the those in power just taking it well. So that filters down right to the person at grassroots. So he's saying, well, if they can take, I'll also take And they find that there's nothing wrong with that. So if they have a need or they just have a desire and more than a need, they will just go start a riot, take whatever they want, but not realizing that that's only going to be, uh, you know, for the short period of time. It's not going to solve the problem, you know, uh, that exists on a large scale. So these are the issues and we have to overcome this culture. And those in power have to say, listen, we're going to change now. We're going to be more strict. If somebody takes what they're not entitled to, they must be punished, you know, to the extreme and that way, there we can create a whole culture of being responsible. That if you work and you earn, then you can use. I mean, but don't just expect to be given handouts all the time. Don't just say, don't just believe that you have a right just to go and take every time you feel that you can take. And we have to now, you know, create that whole awareness again and again. That's where our dean comes in. We've got to teach people to listen that this is. This is your like your moral obligation. This is the way you must live from a moral point of view and have that cleanliness within you. And that, inshallah, will then be something that we can use to, to create kind of a better environment for all of us.
1: Yeah, you know, Mahmoud, this country definitely needs a transformational leadership. I don't think we have any in that. I know we need to join hands and uh, maybe, you know, with a great per- uh, patience and ad- uh, adaptability, respect and humility, we need to work with each other. But I can't see that happening. I can't see that happening in this country. And especially if you've got uh, 10,000 American troops uh, that are sitting in Richards Bay, Allah only knows what they are doing. But, uh, you know, uh, maybe Cyril Ramaphosa been questioned. I mean, just uh, what's it on on, on Wednesday? uh, We had uh, EFF calling all the uh, leaders of the different parties to an indaba. Uh, They want to get rid of uh, Cyril Ramaphosa, who presently, I mean, I can't see any alternative uh, to him, although he's got, uh, you know, that Marikana thing over his head and the pala pala thing. But can you see anyone better than Cyril Ramaphosa, Mahmoud? Oh, right
0: now it's, it's, that's, I think that's the biggest question that we're all asking. Um, and it's so, I don't know. Um, he was the, he was the, the, the great hope. Um, and he hasn't really brought anything, uh, major to the table. And I mean, that's so sad because I mean, um, he was the guy that had the, the biggest potential. Um, and what's, what we're getting from him is just pure promises and like rhetoric. Um, and again, one doesn't know now, you know, why is he not taking everything to the, you know, to the, to the fore, whatever he says? Why can't it, why can't he put it into operation? And then one uh, then hears about all of his own, I mean, like shenanigans, having millions of dollars lying around and being involved in all these other big business deals. And then one just then asks, maybe he's just trying to like, protect his, his, his own self, by not putting too much of pressure, by not trying to sort of rock the boat, so to speak, to put others under pressure because he himself may become exposed. You know, ultimately, um, those that are in power want to protect um, their own position. So the wealth that they've acquired and the power that they've acquired, they obviously want to maintain that. Um, so whether they're holding office or not, for them, at every level, it's a matter of protecting what they've managed to to to. To create for themselves whether it's done lawfully or unlawfully but that they, they want to protect that and ultimately that's what politics is you know they're all just worried about their own self uh, uh, their own self and they're not worried about anybody else and um in protecting themselves they obviously have to uh you know be they will have to overlook the rights of others and i think that's the like major problem that we have
1: Yeah, and the other problem that we have, uh, people talk about the R.E.T., the Radical uh, Economic Transformational Group, still uh, dictated and patrolled and controlled by Zumites. And, you know, there we have this uh, Zuma son, uh, Duduzani, telling the... uh, uh press the other day that you know what by 2024 i will be the president of the country i will be the leader of this country whether you like it or not and it seems as if the uh, you know the, okay you, you you've got two polarized camps uh, one is uh, the ramaphosa's camp uh, that is uh, backed by white monopoly and uh, there you have uh, the ret group that uh, is uh, backed by you know uh, most of uh, the uh, most i mean i don't know maybe half the south african the black population Oh, the populist groups and so forth. uh The RET. I mean, you look at uh, Ramaposa. I said, if you want me to step aside, I'm prepared to step aside. But he will just not let it go just like that because if he steps aside, he'll put someone that is his uh, his man and uh, he'll control from the sidelines. Uh, your thoughts on that, uh Mahmoud? Yeah, you know,
0: again, I mean, this this these Kims. Um, you know, again, it's it's not it's not if you had two Kims who are battling. Because each one can uh, can promise that they can do better for the people, then that kind of of like competition um, we would welcome, because we know that both of the people are vying to come into power because they want to serve the people and they want to improve those around them. But when you have like in the in the present situation where the two of them are fighting, they're not fighting because they believe that they can deliver to the people. They're fighting because they want to secure uh ruling power for themselves. And I think that's the the like biggest cry that we have. Because what they are doing now is that the fight is not a fight that's going to give us an ultimate benefit. The fight is for one of them to come into power. And if they don't come into power, then they're going to create chaos again. Chaos why? Because they have not come into power and they can't and and they can't you know empower themselves. But and, and and chaos that they will create again will be to the detriment of the people. So People just have to be a bit wise and say, look, if the person is making these kind of statements, obviously it means that there is some kind of a movement that they are creating to obviously achieve that particular result. Um, and today in South Africa, with the history of exceptionalism and tribalism and all of that, something like that is like very possible that it can happen. So we just have to be wary and we hope um, that, you know, it doesn't turn into a kind of a civil war or, or some kind of a... a, a an internal
1: uprising that's going to harm everybody. Yeah, Mahmoud, uh, moving on uh, to our topic, we will talk about traffic and getting license and so forth. You know, perhaps uh, one of our moments in life was, uh, you know, getting our driver's license. I know you went for those tests and we got it. Alhamdulillah, Mahmoud. Yeah, come and let's retell the woman properly how we got it. We got it fair and square people. Mm -mm. We (laughs) didn't bribe anyone. Mahmoud and I, hey, yeah. Mahmoud went first time, me too. I went first time. But you know what I did, Mahmoud? I took out my topi and this was this white inspector. I put my topi on and said, Hey, why are you doing that? I said, No, but It gives me more confidence. He said, If it does so, go ahead. And Alhamdulillah, that white topi, I think it made an impression. But you whilst know, we turned back into the driving school, uh, back into the ground. They said, uh, you, have you got samosas? I said, hey, <laughs> now I'm thrown in. I said, no, give me your address. I'll bring you some samosas. I still remember that in <laughs> Cowley's place, he gave me his samosas, but I never took the samosas as long as I got my license. I know I did it fair and square, but the samosas I didn't give him. But, you know, talking about getting the driver's license, you know, that was a moment for us. And I think everyone, of our, even our children, when they go through it, there's this anxiety in the parents that they should get their driver's license. And Alhamdulillah, we all try, because you find all these driving schools will tell you, know, put another 500 rams here or another 1,000, they will get their license. You know, how do you react to like uh, things like that? You know, we as Muslims, we shouldn't compromise ourselves. Uh, talk to us about that scenario, uh, Mahmud, the way you find, you know, the most driving schools, they try and compromise our iman. But uh, your moment in time when you got your driver's license, share that moment too with us, uh, Mahmoud.
0: Yeah, so you know, uh, again, we obviously got our license at the height of apartheid. So basically, you dealing only with um, people of um, of white color. So you uh, again, and basically, people of more of like Afrikaans descent. So you 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 obviously intimidated firstly because you have a, a kind of a big guy sitting next to you. Um, um, but the thing is that ultimately they were doing their job and i think i think that's what's good remember when you're driving on the road your your car is a kind of a like uh, it can be a lethal weapon if you're driving it improperly you can cause harm to others you can cause death to others so getting a license is something that one must do properly you know you must be properly qualified to drive on the road because if you if you don't that's why we have such a high incidence of, of accidents in South Africa, because most of the people who are driving now are not people who have who possess the requisite skills. They've obtained their license fraudulently, or they they don't even have a license for that matter. So people need to appreciate, the listen, it's not a matter of getting a license or now I, I can drive a car. The thing is that if you don't have the necessary skills and you fail your test, it means that you don't have the requisite skill and you need to brush up on that skill. To become onto the road so you don't cause a harm to others. So if you're paying money to somebody uh, uh, to obviously get your license, firstly, from an Islamic point of view, that is morally reprehensible because you're obviously bribing somebody to get some kind of a benefit. Um, but I think you know, even then, just on a kind of a more uh realistic level, you now driving a car you don't have the necessary skills you can't park properly you can't turn properly you don't indicate properly so all of these things are going to cause harm to yourself and to others so that's why get your license properly and avoid doing it by uh, by 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 any other
1: means because it's just a means of creating safer roads you know Mahmoud you make a lot of sense there because imagine the guilt that you have I mean if you've got a conscience and every time you look at your di- driver's license, isn't your memory will be uh, tugged and will take you back from the source of where you got the license from. And in your mind, you know, you know what? Hey, I was a chore, man. I did it the wrong way. And, you know, your kids may be asking you, hey, but dad, how did you get your license? And you say, hey, me, I'm a star. I don't got it like this. But you're lying to them. So uh, the importance of it, it's, it's, it's a moment and it's always a source of a reference, uh, Mahmud.
0: No exactly and 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 the thing is what you need to understand is that um if you got your license improperly because you don't have the necessary skills it doesn't necessarily mean that if you are driving on the road that your skills are going to improve because if you if you obtain your your license recklessly by not following the proper protocols it means that you don't have any desire to be a good driver the only desire you have is to have a license so i can be on the road so it still means that until such uh, so it still means that you're going to you know that potential of harm is always going to be behind you, so you must just bear that in mind so don't believe that the license itself um, is allows you to be on the road. You need to ask yourself consciously the lesson am I fit to be on the road? Do I have the skills? Am I going to be a danger to others and if you answer yes to that then 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 don't go on the road go for proper lessons. And, and, and hone your skills properly and know that, listen, now I feel confident
1: I can be on the road and I'll be able to drive without being a hindrance or danger to others. Now, Mahmoud, even driving, the way you drive your car, it makes a statement, people. Yeah, you're a cool driver. You know, you indicate and you're smiling and you go to the left. You've got the lovely topi, you've got a beautiful beard. Imagine you're driving like a hooligan and the person looks, says, hey, you know who that? That is a slamo, man. Check how the slamo is driving. So Mahmud, I want you to emphasize the point that as a Muslim, and especially when you wear the Sunnah attire, it is so important. It's imperative for us to behave as a refined and a wonderful and a product that is proud to call himself a Muslim and to repre- represent Nabi Muhammad sallallahu alaihi sallam. I'm leaving it to you, Mahmud.
0: No, absolutely. We um, were sitting in the program the other day, and, and they were talking about being muslim and uh, and claiming to have love for allah and claiming to have love for the prophet sallallahu alaihi you see to if you really love the prophet sallallahu alaihi then you must love every sunat of his it's not just a matter of topi and kurta, that's only his outer appearance but the more important thing is to is to have the heart of huzul to be able to think with his mind how would he have thought to see with the eyes of Usaya Pak, to utter with the words of Usaya to let that heart have the feeling and the cry of Usaya So that is what gives us true love for him. And that is, inshallah what makes us people of of stature. Because if you have sunnat in your life, then you have then you have humanity in your life and then you become a true human being. Because that that is why he came to this earth to teach us to be good good human beings, you know, to have that good character. So that must be our ultimate objective. And character is like you say, it's not just a matter of the way we talk or whatever, but it's the way we thrive, the way we react to other people, the way we treat our staff, the way we treat our families, the way we do everything that the Prophet did, everything that he said, what he done, that we must try and inculcate that within our lives. Because if we have that, then, then Alhamdulillah, then we can, benefit other people and people will be able to take lesson and people will be attracted to us so these are all the lessons that we have to
1: put into operation and jazakallah care for that uh, Mahmood and you see divine decree at hand here yeah, is working through you also giving those lovely nasiha this evening making the program very valuable and also you know the road accident fun you know what Mahmood you'd be shocked to say hey, that slamo made so much of money out of the road accident fund and that fella did this anyway we're not here for a gibber platter or a art platter we talk facts here talk to me about uh, the abuse of the road accident fund and it's still being abused uh mahmud a lot of people got rich because of abusing this fund uh, mahmud
0: yeah, so the Royal Ethereum Fund is a fund that was specially created. So every time a person fills petrol in his car, a certain percentage of their money goes to the fund, and that fund is created to to compensate people that were um, injured um, in, uh, you know, like physically like, injured in a motor vehicle accident. So unfortunately, what had happened is that the fund wasn't very properly administered, and many many attorneys were obviously putting in claims and. People were putting in fraudulent claims, um, and so the fund, although it's although it's sort of uh, technically receiving money on a daily basis, the fund actually went insolvent. So there has been changes that are now implemented. The fund has become a bit more strict, um, and they're trying to obviously uh, curtail fictitious claims, um, and they're being more circumspect about amounts that they pay They make sure that there's proper evidence uh supplied for any claims that are put in <clears throat> so hopefully there is some light at the end of the tunnel but it will still take a long while for that fund to become um, again i mean like sort of like uh, fully operational from a, from a kind of a money point of view um so we hope that you know with these new measures that they're putting in that it will create a kind of a more stable environment and hopefully that fund will then benefit people who are who are in need um, of receiving
1: compensation you know, Mahmoud, the question to pose here is also those, uh, you know, those are law firms that, that were complicit in, uh, uh, you know, defrauding the fund. Uh, what is the punishment, or uh, what are some of the uh, uh, repercussions? No, so there has been some some drastic action
0: taken again. So many of the people that were found to have been guilty of this were actually charged in a in a criminal court, and many of them were made to pay back monies that they've received <clears throat> and also many of the of the practitioners that were involved have now been uh, were actually stuck off the road they were stuck off the road so they can't practice anymore as lawyers so i think that was also um, a, a kind of a good step that was taken because it obviously created um you know uh, fear to others who are involved in this Listen, that if you continue with this practice that you could end up losing your license and you
1: could end up losing your livelihood so that has uh, had some kind of a sobering effect I tell you mahmud we're making you talk this evening yeah you're tuning i hope you uh, did that brother bring that zamzam water for you uh you know they were uh, initially they were trying to smuggle it out of the uh, kingdom but then uh, towards the end the you know mbs said, "No oh, man, i got compassion you can take only five liters home so you, you do you have your zamzam water near there next to you mahmud <laughs> Hey, You got it. eh? Hey? hey, You're a lucky guy, Mahmoud. I'm looking at a question from Dawood and Dawood says, uh, I received a notice of the alleged traffic offence five months after it happened. Uh, there was no admission of guilt on the notice, but there was a note stating the amount would be determined by the prosecutor and a summons would follow. What are my rights here and how do I contest it? Dawood, hey, he's got a problem there, Mahmoud. Yeah. So look, the thing is, I mean,
0: uh, you know, um, the fact that it occurred a few months ago that that isn't something which is going to absolve you of liability. At the end of the day, a crime is a crime, and a transgression of the law is a transgression of the law. So there isn't any kind of a, there isn't any kind of a period within which they must do something. So it doesn't mean that because you shoot somebody today and no one knows about it, and one year later they find out, so you'll be absolved. No. So similarly, you are driving on the road, there's obviously. A road uh, a regulation that you have to follow. If you're speeding, um, and if the document that you receive is saying now that you need to appear in court, it means that you are driving at an excessively high speed. Uh, because how it works uh, from a legal point of view is that um, depending on how by, by how much you transgress the speed limit, um, that is the uh, you know there's like different consequences. So. If you exceed the speed limit by 10 or 15 kilometers, for example, then you may get a fine of about 250 Rand. So it works on a scale going upwards. So the more you, the more you've exceeded the speed limit, the higher the fine that you would get. But if you exceed the speed limit by like about by 40 kilometers per hour or more, then what happens? They say, well, look, now that borders on driving recklessly and negligently. So you must now go to court. And explain your conduct to the court, and the court must then fix the amount for the fine because it means that you like that you were really driving at a very very high speed. So in this instance, um, the person would receive a notice to appear before court. The court would obviously lead its evidence as to um, uh, uh, to show by how much he sort of transgressed the speed limit. Mean, this is normally done by way of records that they have in terms of the radar that they were using. Or the, uh, um, or the camera that they were using. And the person who monitors that camera or who operates it would come and give evidence. And, and if they have like video footage or they have um, um, like photo footage, they would obviously present that and you would then have the opportunity of putting forward your vision as to why you transgressed it. So basically in terms of the law, obviously there is a kind of an emergency, not as a matter of life and death in relation to a hospital, for example, in a, in a case like that, that could be factors which mitigate or take away um, your having um, exceeded the speed limit. But if you were just on a kind of a joyride and just driving recklessly, then obviously, then you have to pay uh, the sort of consequences of your conduct.
1: Uh, Jazakallah for that, Mahmood, brilliantly answered. Uh, Nazir says, if the arresting officer does not pitch up in court, will the traffic ticket be dismissed? Hey. <laughs> Hey, I think a lot of them say, hey, he's coming, he's coming. No, he didn't come. Hey, you're thrown in, bro. Talk to us, Mahmoud. Yeah, no, so exactly.
0: So so when you court for speeding or any other criminal offence, the state has to lead evidence, um, you know, in respect of your transgression. And this is normally done by a traffic officer in the case of a speeding fine. So if he was the person that was monitoring the, the camera or the laser, or whatever he was using, and if he doesn't pitch up to court on the day, uh, it means that there will be no one to testify uh, about your your transgression. So in that case, in all likelihood, they would have the case dismissed. But now, dismissed means that because the guy is not there and they don't want to create a backlog on the on the court roll, then that is struck off the roll. But that doesn't mean that you are found not guilty. It simply means that your case is struck off for like, technical reasons. If, however, the person comes to the fore and they want to recharge you again, they can always call you back to court at some future date. Um, so, so so, that is something that can happen. And obviously, if he then comes and he can lead enough evidence to show that there was a transgression, and then obviously, I mean, then there is a possibility that you could be found guilty of the offence, in which event
1: um, a fine will be imposed against you. Now, uh, does a traffic, a traffic fine mean that you'll get a criminal record, Mahmoud? <clears throat> Well,
0: it could, uh, again. So, you know, f- for your normal transgression, for example, if, you, if you're if just slightly over the speed limit and you get a, a kind of a camera ticket and you pay, that is not um, a like, criminal fine. But if you're driving at an extremely high speed and you go to court um, and you plead guilty, that will result in you having a criminal record against your name.
1: Oh, jazakallah for clearing that up. I eh? I see this Unus is quite sharp here. It says, Assalamualaikum What's a, a legitimate a legitimate reason for speeding? Hey. So you can Mahmud give him some tips. <laughs> no, so I mean, like, generally speaking, the thing is that I mean, when you
0: have rules of the road and you have speed limits that are fixed, it's done. It, it you know, it's not just a kind of a warm and fancy thing that a person puts up a board. You can drive 100 years, 60 year, 80 year. They obviously look at the environment in which you are driving, and they they see that this and you know these things are done by by, by uh, scientific methodologies to say, okay, you are driving on an open road from Joburg to Durban, for example, you're having these two lanes of traffic. It's all in, in, in one direction. There's a barrier in between. So to drive at 120 won't be a, a kind of a danger. But obviously when you're driving through a town, for example, you can't drive at 120 because you have pedestrians, you have people on motorbikes, you have people on bicycles, young children crossing the road. So all of these uh, limitations are put in the interest of the public. It's not something which we, we should feel, you know, uh, hard up about. It's something that is in our own interest. So, in terms of abiding by it, generally speaking, in terms of the of, of the rules of the road, you, you you need to abide by the amount of, I mean, by the by the limits imposed in terms of speeding. If you do exceed it, if there's a kind of an emergency, and you now, like I said, to use the example of rushing somebody to the hospital or whatever. So, in those kind of circumstances. There may be some condemnation of you exceeding the speed limit. But in doing that as well, you must not be a danger to others. If you're driving through a small town at 150 kilometers per hour, obviously that's good. Whether you have a patient that's having a heart attack or whatever, the point is that if you drive like that in a kind of a closed up area, you're likely to cause others harm as well. So even if you want, if you have an, a basis for, 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 for exceeding the speed limit, do it
1: with caution, not just reckless. Well, Mahmoud, you know why we missed you, eh? I hope you missed us as, as much as we missed you because you really <laughs> add value to the show, Mahmoud. And uh, your parting words uh, this evening?
0: Inshallah, so we pray that Allah Ta'ala makes things easy for us. Um, we firstly hope that uh, this, this winter comes to an end because George everybody is very cold. <laughs> so we're hoping to get uh, some kind of a warmer weather coming along, inshallah. But I think, uh, you know, just we hope that Allah Ta'ala gives us the tawfiq and the to become good Muslims um, and to come into the total obedience of Allah Taala and to come into the total following of Huzuriya Bala because only in that is a total and absolute success. And really for us, if we just accept that and if we will lead our life in fulfillment of that, then inshallah, we can only have success in this world covered in akhirat. And ultimately, that's what we aim for, to meet Allah in a state that is pleased with us.
1: I mean, uh, Summa, I mean, uh, Mahmud, Allah bless you now and forever. You have a blessed evening ahead. as alaikum alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaykum, as-salamu alaykum wa, wa Yes, uh, people, uh, don't go anywhere. We'll go for a break. And after that, I will be with Wasaila al alamas Sadiqa, Truthful News.